There were some, uh, all sorts of things happened in the world in 2009. Um, Barack Obama became the first African-American president, um, and one Joe Biden became the vice president. Uh, in March of 2009, there was a pandemic. Uh, the World Health Organization um, declared, do you remember what it was? The swine flu, SARS or the swine flu, H1N1. And um, I read the statistics. There were 12,500 people who died from it in the US. So a little bit different from the pandemic we are currently maybe finishing off with. Uh, in 2009, uh, Sully, that famous pilot, landed a United, uh, United Airways, US Airways flight on the Hudson River. Um, and all 155 passengers survived. Um, so it was the miracle on the Hudson. 2009, Michael Jackson died. Uh, Bitcoin was created. Did anybody get on the, on the ground with Bitcoin in 2009? <laughs> Me neither. Uh, in 2009, the world was still getting over the global financial crisis. Uh, me, I was in Bible college. Um, I think it was my second year. I'd quit my job as a school teacher, and at age 32, I'd gone to a four-year full-time degree, uh, a theology school. Um, I was age 32. I had a, a wife and two little kids. Um, so I think my kids were five and seven at the time, or something like that. I'm not good with maths. But yeah, a wife, kids, mortgage. And uh, it's a long way to, um, to talk about the idea of a mortgage contract. Um, we all understand how a mortgage works. Uh, we enter into a contract or an agreement with a bank where um, the bank agrees to pay for the house up front and, um, and you agree to pay off the, the loan for as long as you live, more or less, or until you refinance. <laughs> you still have to pay it back then. I, I do understand that much. Uh, and if I fail to make repayments, um, then the agreement is broken and the bank forecloses on the house and they sell it and they take whatever they need and you get whatever's left, um, if you're lucky enough. Um, that's the mortgage contract. And uh, we all understand how mortgages work. Both parties have obligations to meet, otherwise the deal is over. Um, the agreement is broken. And our Bible story today, it's all about a contract, um, a covenant that God makes with Abram. And actually, there's a covenant that he makes with us. So why don't we pray that God would speak to us today about his covenant promises. Let's pray as we open the Bible. Our Father, you are the God who spoke creation into being. Uh, your words shaped stars and planets, um, and your words caused the world to keep turning even today. So we ask that you would speak life-shaping life words to us today, helping us to understand your promises to us uh, from this part of the Bible. We ask you to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, our Bible passage today, it's all about a contract that God makes with Abram, a, a covenant. And actually, it's not the first covenant that God has made with Abram. Um, we've been tracing the story of Abram over the last four weeks. And so you remember this section of the Bible is all about how God calls Abram um, into uh, three promises. He calls him out of his father's country, and he makes him a promise to bring him, first of all, into a land, um, a special land that God would give him. And then he promises to make Abram's family into this great nation. And then third, he promises that through Abram's family, not only would he bring blessing to Abram, but he'd end up blessing the entire world. Uh, three promises, land, nation, and blessing. But God had made those promises to Abram 24 years earlier than the chapter that we're up to today. Um, I was trying to remember what happened 24 years ago. I needed a calculator to work out when that was. I think it was 1998. It was the first year I was a school teacher. Um, God had made those promises to Abram 24 years earlier. 
And Abram had been waiting 24 years for God to fulfill those promises. It's a long time to wait. You might think what you were doing 24 years ago. And some of the problems with the promise, they hadn't changed in 24 years. The land was still full of Canaanites. Um, and the great nation, well, Abram and Sarai, um, they had remained childless. Uh, remember that um, she had always been childless. And when God first spoke to them, Abram was 75 years old and she was 65. And now he's 99 and she's 89. Abram is 99, Sarah's 89. It seems impossible that they're ever going to have children under natural means. It's not humanly possible for that to happen. And not that they hadn't tried. Um, in our story last week, Abraham and Sarah, they tried to have an heir a different way. Um, Sarah had given her Egyptian maidservant to Abram so that he could have his heir through her. And they did have this son, Ishmael. We, we heard about him in the passage today. But Ishmael is not the son of promise. He's not the one that God had been promising all of this time. So 24 years they've been waiting. It's such a long time to wait. But they weren't 24 years of complete silence. Um, God had continued to speak to Abram, and we have some of those recorded. Um, so 13 years earlier than our passage today, um, God had made a covenant with Abram. That's in Genesis 15. Um, God had reminded um, Abram of all of his promises, the land, the nation, the blessing. And God had performed this symbolic sign that he was going to keep his covenant. Uh, and in this covenant, um, the promise, the sign was this. He took a bunch of animals and he chopped them in half. That's what God did. A dream that Abram had of, of how God would do this. He pushed them apart and God walks between the pieces. It's kind of like saying... If I don't keep my promises, may I also be chopped in half and not... Uh, it's a quite a vivid promise, right? He's deadly serious about keeping his covenant, but that was 13 years earlier. Um, 13 years ago, that was what 2009 was. That was the segue. 13 years and the promise had not been kept. Um, could you imagine if I'd signed a mortgage contract in 2009, if I'd refinanced, and um, imagine you were still waiting for the bank to give the money over. Imagine that, you signed a contract 2009, you're still waiting. I see a property developer saying, yeah, that's not that unusual. Um, imagine you're still waiting for the payment to come through on your house. I think you would probably just give up and move on, right? You get on with your life and you start to wonder, is, is that how Abraham was feeling? Well, open up to Genesis 17 with me on the back of your page because after 24 years, the bank is about to pay out. Um, look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Can you imagine this? After 24 years, God finally says, I'm going to keep my covenant. Um, Abram, he falls down on his face before God. This is what people do when they meet the living God. Uh, you don't sort of stand up and say, well, it's nice to meet you, God. He's terrifying. He falls down in his face. Maybe he's falling down in gratitude. I'm not sure. It's a good reaction. God says to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. He says, you'll be the father of many nations. Uh, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you the father of many nations. In Hebrew, Abraham, once you add that little syllable in the middle, it means father of many nations. Um, that's what Abraham means. Uh, God says in verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant 
between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God. Imagine that. God says, I'm, I'm going to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And this whole land of Canaan, God says, where you're now residing as a foreigner, I'm, I will give you this as an everlasting possession and your descendants afterwards, and, and I will be their God. Um, so great nation, the land of Canaan, God promises them to Abram again. And now God changes Abraham's name to reflect the reality of the covenant promises that are going to come true. Abraham, that little syllable change, and now his name means father of many nations. Um, Sarai, she gets a name change as well in verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I'll bless her and she will surely give you a son. Oh, sorry, I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Um, Sarah's name, it means princess. Um, she's a princess and she and Abraham will have descendants who become kings and royalty. And after all of this time, God's promises to Abraham, they were coming true. But the most precious promise, uh, the precious promise that he and Sarah had probably given up on long ago, the promise of a baby, the promise they probably cried about and mourned over, the fact that they would never have children, that human impossibility was now being overcome by God himself. Abraham is overcome with joy. He's overwhelmed. He falls face down, verse 17, and he laughs to himself. He says, will a, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And God tells Abraham that indeed Sarah will be the one. She, she's going to have a son within a year. In verse 21, that's what it says there. And the child's name will be Isaac, which means he laughs. That's what Isaac means. He laughs. Just like Abraham had laughed with joy at the thought of this long-awaited son. Now, that's the covenant promise. God is going to bring his promises to fulfillment. And so all the questions that Abram must have had for those 24 years, well, now they're all answered. We know, we know when he's going to have the child of promise. And we know who he's going to have the child with. And uh, we know how it's going to happen and when. It's all been answered. But there's just one thing for Abram to do. And this is about a covenant sign. Abram had to keep his end of the covenant bargain. Uh, look at verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant that you are to keep. Every male amongst you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Lots of us are asking, why circumcision? Why would this be the sign? Why does God ask for every man descended from Abram to perform this sign of the covenant? Um, and when you read it in this passage, there seems to be no way out of it, does there? It's clear what God says to Abraham. Abraham and all his descendants must be circumcised if they want to be included in God's covenant. And that included all of um, everybody who lived in the household, even slaves and servants and foreigners who've come to live in Abraham's family. They all have to be circumcised, otherwise they'll be cut off from God's people and cut off from God's promise. It got cut off from God's covenant. So what is so magical about circumcision that it means God will accept you if you've done it and he'll cut you off if you haven't, at least at that time? Um, let me ask you a question. How do you know that I'm married? How do you know I'm married? I, I am wearing a ring today. Um, 
I have fat fingers. Um, and so actually, this is not my original wedding ring. I had to get one that's a little bit flexible. Um, <laughs> don't judge me for it. <laughs> when we get married, um, we exchange rings as a token of our pledge. Uh, the ring doesn't mean that we're married, right? But it's a symbol of our promises to one another. Um, this ring lets people know that I'm married. Uh, and this ring should remind me that if I'm ever tempted, um, that I belong to one woman only. And uh, the woman who put this ring on my finger made those promises to me. Now, I could take the wedding ring off, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm married. Uh, but you've seen the movies, right? We all know what it means when somebody takes the wedding ring off and puts it in their pocket. See, God wanted his people to have a permanent symbol of their pledge, a permanent sign of the covenant. Circumcision is not something you can undo or take off. And so is there anything magical about circumcision? You know, couldn't God have made it some other kind of sign, like a tattoo or a piercing, or why is it circumcision? And uh, I'm not sure if this is correct, but I've been persuaded by this argument. I think it comes back to Abram and Sarah and how only God could overcome their childlessness. Um, Abram tried to produce an heir on his own terms. Uh, he tried to play God with his reproductive bits. But God wanted Abram to know that life comes from the Creator alone. And no descendant of Abraham will exist without God's blessing of life poured out upon his people, um, uh, poured out upon his children. So when they come to live in the land, and when they become this great nation, and when they're enjoying God's blessing, God wants his people to remember where it all came from. Where did it come from? Where did it start? Well, it started with a promise to an old man. And the sign of circumcision was to be this constant and permanent reminder. It's worth pausing there to ask yourself whether you recognize God's goodness to you in the normalness of life, in all of the things that happen every single day. Do you remember that God is the source of life and that you were made by Him, by His choice? Do you remember that with thankfulness? And if God is the one who sustains the world, do you remember that every breath you take is only because God allows it to be so? Um, our world wants to uh, wants us to swallow the lie that, that God doesn't exist. And the world wants us to believe that we create our own luck and we create our own destiny and that, you know, we're in control of what happens. But this covenant of circumcision reminds us that there's only one person who's in control of everything, and that's God. He's in control of every single life that ever existed. If you've forgotten where your blessings come from, uh, wouldn't it be great to go home this week and to, to, to think about that? Just to think perhaps at the end of every day, what's something I could be thankful to God for today? Um, now, circumcision and confusion. Um, I think there's two potentially confusing ideas in our passage today. Um, now, the first is this, what does God mean when he says, you must keep my covenant? And second, what does it mean, um, what does God mean when he says, this is an everlasting covenant? See, I think there are plenty of Christians, plenty of people who get confused about circumcision and what it means, um, both Christians and non-Christians. And there's a question, does God still want us to circumcise boys? Um, I've Christian friends who decided to circumcise their baby boys because they read this passage and the thinking goes, well, if God said it's an everlasting covenant, then we've got to do it. Some of you maybe did that. Some of you maybe had that done to you. Um, I know some of you feel very strongly about circumcision. I know some people do. Um, in a second, I'm going to take you to the New Testament um, to see what the Bible says about circumcision in light of Jesus. Um, just a spoiler alert, it says it's actually not that important. Um, 
The far more important question is the first one, which is what does God mean when he says you must keep my covenant? What does he mean when he says you must keep my covenant? See, lots of us will read Genesis 17:1 and say, God wants me to be blameless before he'll keep his promises to me. Do you see what I mean? Read it again at verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram and he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant with you. Um, I'll make my covenant between me and you and I'll greatly increase your numbers. It sounds like God is saying, first, you live a perfect life. You be blameless. You walk in front of me and I'll be watching. And if you can do that, then I'll do my bit. I'll give you the kids, the land, all of it. Is that what God is saying here? Is that what God is saying? It sounds like this impossible covenant for humans to keep. Um, As if God expects us to be perfect before he'll accept us as his children. Um, And I think that's how a lot of people imagine God, this kind of waiting judge, just waiting to trip us up. No, you're out. Cut off. But I want to show you from the New Testament that Actually, God knows that we can never be perfect uh, without him. And so God actually becomes the one who keeps the covenant on our behalf. And he keeps the covenant for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So how is the covenant fulfilled? Um, I want to spend a minute thinking about being good enough for God. We've got an Alpha class starting this week. Um, Alpha is all about finding out who Jesus is and asking all the questions you ever wanted to ask about Christianity. Well, a few years ago in Alpha class, I had this lovely lady in the group. She'd probably been in church for 20 years. And I said, "Um, what must we do to be saved? And she says, "Um, you have to be a good person. Uh, It's the Genesis 17, one answer, right? Walk before me and be blameless. But the reality is we aren't able to do that. And so I want you to go down to the Romans reading at the bottom of that page, Romans 3, 10 to 12, Romans reminds us that it's not actually possible for anybody to walk blamelessly before God. Romans 3.10 to 12 says this, paraphrased a little bit, there is nobody righteous, not even one. There's nobody who seeks God and all have turned away. I loved in that last song, actually, we were saying we're running to your arms. This passage tells us that we run away from God's arms. As sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we've all turned our backs on God. Uh, We don't walk before God, we walk uh, away from Him. Uh, We do things that put us on the wrong side of God. We're we're not righteous and we don't seek Him on our own. And if God were to say, I'm not going to establish my covenant with you until you turn back and do the right thing, none of us would be saved. None of us would be saved. Um, There'd be nobody who would turn back to God. There wouldn't be even one. We would all be cut off. But the good news of the Bible is that God doesn't cut us off, even though it's what we might deserve. Because of his great love, God made it possible for us sinful humans to be made righteous again through faith in Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 5, on your handout there, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, he's the only human who's ever lived a blameless life. And so Jesus... He becomes the only one qualified to keep the covenant on our behalf and he becomes our covenant keeper. His his righteous life gets exchanged for our sinful life. His righteous life is exchanged for our sinful life. Um, His blameless walk is exchanged for our walking away from God life. We get his results. Jesus exchanges his life for ours so that we can receive the benefits of his blameless and sinless life. And that's what The cross is all about. It's why we keep it here in church. We want to be reminded that God has made it possible for us to come before the living God. Not guilty of what we've done, but forgiven. 
And the way that we receive this righteousness from Christ is through faith. And that's where Abraham comes back into the picture. You see, back in Genesis chapter 15, before God made any covenant with Abraham, um, before the sign of circumcision was ever mentioned, Abraham believed God's promises and God credited it to him as righteousness. See, Abram, he never had to earn God's favor. Um, He didn't have to earn his own righteousness by doing some religious act like circumcision. No, instead, circumcision, it was just an outward sign of the inner righteousness that Abraham already had by faith when he was circumcised. And if you read Romans 4.11, it says exactly that. And so if circumcision is just his outward symbol, it means that anybody can be right with Christ and anybody can be right with God through faith alone, through faith in Jesus, whether you're circumcised or not. So circumcision and uncircumcision actually means nothing in the end. It's our hearts that matter. And funnily enough, even God's people understood that well before Jesus arrived. Um, Thousands of years, in fact, in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, God talks about people having circumcised hearts and uncircumcised hearts. Um, He talks about making sure that our hearts are sealed and promised and belong to God alone. Hearts that no longer seek to walk away from God, but hearts that turn back to God and want to walk faithfully before Him and want to keep His covenant. So I want to finish this morning by asking, where's your heart? Where is your heart at? Is your heart a heart that seeks after God and turns back towards Him, that comes through faith in Jesus to ask for forgiveness? Is that where your life is? Do you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And do you have a heart that's turning away from all of those things that aren't good for you and turning back to the path that God sets before you? Because that's what the heart of the Christian faith is. It's a heart that turns back to God a heart that seeks to do His will and a heart that wants to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Our hearts are so much more important than outward religious symbols. So where is your heart? Are we going to sing our final song in a moment? Um, What I love about singing in church is sometimes it just gives you a, a different way to think. Sometimes it activates a different part of your brain, right brain, left brain, I don't know. But in this song there's a chance to let God speak to you in a different way. Um, And uh, sometimes the words of the song will impact you. So let this song wash over. You can sing along with it. We've actually mashed two songs together. There's a a little bridge from another song at the end, which says, I'm no longer a slave to fear because I'm a child of God. Um, When we have our faith in Jesus, we receive these promises to be children of God. Why don't you let me pray for us? And think about your heart is, how your heart is going to respond to God today. Our Heavenly Father, um, this passage reminds us that you keep your covenant faithfully with us. Through Jesus Christ, you make it possible for us to walk in your ways, to make us walk and be counted as righteous. Our Father, by faith, help us to walk every day for Jesus. And now, Father, help us to respond to you in faith and in love. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.